Thank you, Will, for leading us in that song this morning for orchestra members and singers for uh, singing those songs. I love that. I love that song. The Lord is a good, good Father, and He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. And uh, those are great words to remind us of His great love for us. And I hope that you had the opportunity uh, this this past week to kind of put things on pause a little bit and 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 go before the Lord and be able to. Uh, express your gratefulness and your thankfulness to Him for all of His many blessings in your life and all that He continues to bless you with. You know, Thanksgiving is really one of my favorite holidays, and there's a number of reasons why that's the case, Uh, not the least of which is the fact that it it typically always signals the the coming of Christmas. In fact, now it's even moved back even farther. I mean, the the coming of, of Christmas is, we actually start talking about even long before Thanksgiving, but I can remember even as a kid, when Thanksgiving came, you knew that Christmas was, was coming right behind it, and it was always that time. And, and I love Thanksgiving. I love, I love Christmas as, as well. I love the, the music of Christmas. I love the giving of gifts. I love the, being able to uh, decorate the house and those kind of things. All of that is, is exciting for me and for our family. And, and what you ought to know is that on the church calendar today is the first Sunday of, of Advent. And Advent is the season in which Christians all over the world observe a time of excited waiting and, and preparation for the, the coming and the celebration of the birth of Christ. It's a time of expectant hope, recognizing that, that Jesus the Messiah came just as the prophets foretold that He would in order to inaugurate His kingdom. And that's what really the, the whole idea of the expectant coming of Christ and, and this time of year really is what makes this passage that we're going to look at from the Psalms this morning really so timely. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to the 132nd Psalm. Psalm 132. We're going to continue right along in our study of, that we've been on now for a number of weeks through the Psalms of the Ascent. And those 15 Psalms that we find there in the last book of the Psalms. And, and, and we're going to look at it this morning. And in previous weeks, we've, we've even looked at it three at a time and sometimes just two at a time. But today, we're just going to look at this one Psalm. Psalm 132, and focus our attention there. And I believe that it's a highly appropriate psalm for us to focus our attention on, particularly as we anticipate the celebration of the birth of Christ and the arrival of the Christmas season. So, with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Psalm 132, which says this, The eternal dwelling of God in Zion, a song of ascents. Verse 1, Lord, remember David in all his afflictions how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, 
their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it promises us so many things. And Father, we find those promises to be found true in Christ. We're thankful for that. I pray that today as we look into your word and as we study it, that you will allow your Holy Spirit to bring us into a greater understanding and recognition of what you would have us to learn from it. And then help us to apply this truth to our lives. Father, I pray for encouragement for us today, for strengthening and a resolve in our faith. This I pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, of all the Psalms of the Ascent that we've looked at, the 15 that will, we'll, Lord willing, we'll conclude our study through them next week, but of the ones that we've looked at thus far, this one perhaps is the most unique. It's certainly the longest of any one that we have looked at thus far. And it's also a psalm, even though many of the others are, are there's contention with regard to scholarship on them, this particular psalm, is very diverse with regard to those who, who believe when it was written and who wrote it. There's just no consensus whatsoever among scholarship as to who wrote this psalm and to when it was written. Nevertheless, this psalm has some very distinctive features that I think are worth us noting this morning. First of all, embedded within it, in the, particularly in the first half of this psalm, are some very important moments in Israel's history that the psalmist is reminding us of. And accompanying the history lesson that the psalmist is giving us here is a plea on behalf of the psalmist and on behalf of Israel for God to remember those same historical events. Now, it's interesting to note that, that the psalmist is not wanting God to remember something because he believes God's forgotten, that he's, he's developed a case of amnesia and just can't remember. That's not why he writes what he writes. He's asking for God to remember certain things because attached to that is a plea for God to act. It's a plea for him to do something as a result of what the history lesson that he's announcing to us is. And so that's important that we understand. The second thing that I want to point out to you is that the second half of the psalm that begins in verse 11 really is a direct correlation to the first half. And in it, what we are able to hear is the Lord's response to the pleas of the author. In other words... The last half of the psalm tells us what God the Father promises to do and how he promises to respond to the psalmist's request. And the third distinctive part of this psalm is something that may not be as readily visible as the first two. You see, regardless of who wrote the psalm and regardless of, of when it was written, the promises of God recording in the, recorded in the second half of this psalm force us to realize that their ultimate fulfillment has yet to be completely realized. And so, as a result of that, we must grapple 
with what that means for us today. So those are the distinctive features of this text, and it causes us to focus our study on a historical look back. It causes us to identify a promissory look to the future, but it really helps, it gives us an, a prophetic look toward how the, the, the promises will be fulfilled. Now, the outline that I provided for you this morning is a very simple one. It's very different from the outlines that I typically provide for you. Some of you will be glad about that. But today I've divided my thoughts really into three headings, three things that we can hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And really, very, very simple. It's the plea, the promise, and the fulfillment. The plea, the promise, and the fulfillment. Let's look at, first of all, the plea. That's what I want to focus our attention on to begin with this morning. The first ten verses are really just that. They are a plea from the, the, the psalmist to God to act. And the requests that the psalmist makes are based upon his reminding God of some things that had happened historically in David's life. Specifically, the afflictions that David had experienced. It was an oath that David had made, and it was a treasure that David had found. That's the, that's the history that the psalmist points to. And the psalmist begins in verse 1 by saying this, Lord, remember David. And then if you'll notice in verse 10, he says something similar. He says, for your, your servant David's sake. Now I think it's worth noting that, that the psalmist does not go into great detail regarding the historical situation to which he refers. He really didn't have to. It would have been a very familiar history for the nation of Israel and for the people who would have read this psalm and who would have sung it. In fact, Eugene Peterson has commented that the brevity of what the psalmist write, writes here is intentional. He says the psalm does not retell this history to which the psalmist refers. It only remembers it. There is only enough here to trigger the historical memories of the people. Maybe some of that happened with you guys at, around the Thanksgiving table this last week. You were, you were there and maybe you were there with family or maybe you had brothers and sisters that were there. And, and really, sometimes when you're there with family like that, you don't have to recount everything that happened in the historical past. Sometimes all you got to do is just drop a little word or two and that's enough to start the conversation going. If you can identify with that at all, that's sort of what, what the psalmist is doing here. He's just saying enough to get us all on the page with him with regard to the historical background that he wants us to remember. What should be done that is if we're a little unclear about it, you might want to go home this afternoon and jot this down. You might want to go back and read 2 Samuel chapters 6 and 7. Because really, everything that David, excuse me, that the psalmist writes here in, in Psalm 132 can find its root right there in, that, in those two chapters in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. Because it's there that we find that after David had been anointed as king, that he went and found a treasure. What he found was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the Ark that, that had been sort of forgotten about during Saul's reign a little bit. And David went and found that Ark, and he had it commissioned to be brought into the city of Jerusalem. And with great fanfare, you find there that David went out in front of the procession and he helped all the instruments play. He was playing his own instruments as he went and he danced and he twirled around and he, he enjoyed this procession that took this ark that had been kind of forgotten about to be brought into the city, into the holy city of Jerusalem. But as we continue to read in 2 Samuel, we find out that wasn't enough for David. David longed to do more. We, we go on to read in 2 Samuel 7 that, that David was disturbed that he had been built 
a, a house, a house made of cedar. It was a permanent house, a beautiful palace, and he was allowed to live in that house, and yet the ark of God that represented the presence of God among his people resided in a tent. In fact, David says this, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So here we learn of David's passionate desire to build a temple. A temple where the ark of God would rest and that would represent the the holy place where, where God himself would rest among his people and would reside. And so passionate was David and so desirous was he to accomplish this that, that he says, the, the psalmist says, in effect, he made this oath, I'm not going to rest until it's done. I won't go to sleep. I won't allow my eyes to close until this, this palace, this, excuse me, until this temple is completed. Now, we know that that was hyperbole. What we recognize is that many times we'll say the same thing. I'm just not going to rest until this gets done. I'm not going to stop. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying that David said. He, he made this commitment. He wanted to see the temple constructed. But what we learn from Israel's history and reading on in the historical books of the Old Testament, from 2 Samuel 7, from 1 Kings, from 1 Chronicles, we learn that David's desire to be the one to build the temple was rejected. You see, because he had been the one who through many afflictions had fought battles in order to to, to secure and to subdue the city of Jerusalem and to make it the holy city of God because of all the wars that he engaged in and all the blood that he shed, the Lord God refused to allow David to be the one to build the temple. Instead, the Lord gave that honor to David's son, Solomon. Nevertheless, David's zeal for the temple did not go away. In fact, history tells us that he amassed a lot of wealth He amassed a lot of building supplies and and money that would aid his son Solomon in being able to complete the task of building the temple, to build that place where the the ark of God would rest and where God himself would make his home among his people. So the historical background to this psalm is the sincere dedication of David to see the temple built there in Jerusalem, to see a permanent place For God to dwell among his people. And so the psalmist really echoes a plea. He echoes the plea of David, which is why he calls David to mind and why he asks God to remember him. And it involves the carrying of the ark into the temple of God where he would make his home. And that's why verse 8 really kind of puts everything into a, a, a nice little summary for us because there the plea is this. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. So that's the plea, and that's the historical background surrounding it. Now let's look at the promise. second point on your outline this morning is the promise. You see, the second half of this psalm, beginning in verse 11, though it was written by the psalmist, is really the response of God to the plea of the first half of the psalm. And that's made clear by the fact that the psalmist writes this, The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. And here's what he swore, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So what we see here is God's response, but also we find sort of a reversal taking place from from what had been pushed forward in the first ten verses. You see, those verses centered around David's concern to build God a permanent house, But here in these verses, in verses 11 and 12, what we read 
is of the Lord's promise to build David a permanent house. He is going to build David a kingly lineage that he says will last forever. And in these verses, we once again find a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and what is called the Davidic covenant. I'm not going to read all of that for you this morning, but I do encourage you to go back and read it for yourself. In effect, the Davidic covenant promised that one of David's sons would sit on the throne and that David's line would continue as long as they were faithful to God. And that is what God's response is here in verses 11 and 12. Furthermore, we see down in verses 13 and 14 that the Lord goes on to respond to the plea from the first half of the psalm that He would indeed make His resting place among His people there in Zion. And then in verses 15 and 16, He promises to supply the needs of His people. He says this, he says, I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout for, aloud for joy. That's still not all because then we read down in verses 17 and 18 that the Lord says this. He says that he would make a horn of David grow and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. And his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Now, God, in all of these lists of things that He says He will do, He promises that He will will answer every request, every plea that the psalmist brings up in the first half of the psalm. Here's what I want you to notice about His response. Every verb that is attached to God's promise in the second half of the psalm is in the future tense. He says it's going to happen. Listen, he says, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. I will dwell among my people in Zion. I will bless. I will satisfy. I will clothe. I will cause the horn of David to grow. All of these promises are definite, but they are all in the future tense. In other words, at the time that the Lord made them, they had yet to come to pass. And quite frankly, this is where as history has unfolded, the people of God have struggled with this psalm and with others like it. You see, the inevitable question that comes up when these promises are considered is, when, O Lord, are you going to fulfill your promises? When when will the promises change from being future tense to being present tense or even past tense? When will it actually happen? Have you ever wondered maybe the same kind of question in your life? God, when when will these things that, that you say are going to take place, when will we know that they have happened? When will we when can we point back and say we know that it's been accomplished? That's what many of the, the children of Israel were struggling with. And we might say to some degree that that many of what, if not all of what God had promised here had, did have past tense attached to it. In fact, what we know is that Solomon went on to build the temple. He went on to take all that David had left for him and he constructed it just as God instructed him to do. In fact, Solomon said this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 through and following, when, when the, the, the temple was dedicated to the Lord. He says, So the Lord has fulfilled His word which He spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
And there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then Solomon stood before the altar and the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread his hands out toward heaven, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So as Solomon says, God's promises did in fact turn from future tense to past tense. Yet, when we continue to study Scripture and Israel's history, we learn this. Because David's lineage and because the subsequent sons of his who were heirs to the throne were so rebellious and so disobedient to God, we learn that the nation of Israel was divided and that it was ultimately defeated. And both Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. Furthermore, we learned that the temple that David had so longed to build and that Solomon was given the, the privilege of building was ultimately destroyed. In fact, some scholars even believe that that is the occasion of this psalm, Psalm 132, that it was written after that temple was destroyed. It, during the time of Nehemiah and the time of Ezra when, when the temple was being reconstructed, and many of those who had been taken into captivity were able to go back to Jerusalem and they saw the rubble of that first massive, wonderful, glorious temple and they began to write the psalm just as this, that God would ultimately re, uh, fulfill His promises again. And we know that He did. A continued reading of Israel's history tells us that the temple was in fact rebuilt, albeit it was never as grand as the first one. But we also know that it too was later destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. and has not been rebuilt since. We also know that David's earthly throne did not last forever. It ended when the last of the Davidic kings, Jeconiah, was carried off to Babylon at the time of the exile, and he died there. In fact, Jeconiah was so disobedient that the prophet Jeremiah wrote that no descendant of his would ever sit on the throne of David or rule in Judah. So, in light of that continued revelation of history, here's the question. In light of what history tells us took place, what do we do with this psalm? What do we do with the promises that God makes in this psalm? Because we see that even though God made promises and even though He may have fulfilled them, they were not fulfilled permanently. So now what? Here's where we need the last heading and the third point on your outline, which is this, the fulfillment. You see, I like what Alexander McLaren observed about this passage. He reasons that the shape of God's responses in the second half of this psalm really is determined by the form of the requests in the first half. But he notes that in each case, the answer that the Lord gives is really larger than the request. That there is a heightened fulfillment associated with each of the pleas that the psalmist makes in the first half. And as McLaren points out, such a heightened fulfillment actually points beyond the past and even beyond the present to the future messianic age that is ushered in by Jesus Christ. Consider this. Verses 1 through 5, the psalmist's plea is for God to remember David's oath. 
And that David had this desire to build God this permanent dwelling place. And then the Lord responds in verses 11 and 12 by promising to bless David with a never-ending line of kings if his sons kept their part of the covenant by living obedient lives. But as we've already noted, David's future sons did not keep that part of the covenant, and they were disobedient. But as Stephen Uly points out, here's what we must understand. When God established His covenant with David and made it conditional upon obedience, He had a specific son of David in mind. God had Jesus Christ in mind. And you see, what we find concerning Jesus is that He obeyed God perfectly. And God established Him upon David's throne, thereby fulfilling His promise. And Luke confirms this for us in the New Testament. When the angel of the Lord came to, to Mary before, before she had given birth to Christ and announced to her in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and following, He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call His name Jesus, and He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. See, what that means is that in order for us to completely recognize how God fulfilled His promises, we must move beyond Solomon's prayer and, and read further. We must, we must move beyond the immediate fulfillment of God's promises that related to any other descendant of David who sat on the throne, and we must recognize that the full and final fulfillment of God's promise is found in Jesus Christ. Which leads to the next thing I want you to see. In verses 6 through 8, the psalmist pled for David to dwell among his people. And in verses 13 and 14, God promised to do so in his holy temple. But as we've already seen, the earthly temple is gone. So how has God fully and finally kept that promise? Well, John, in the prologue of his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, tells us that Jesus Christ was the Word and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, verse 19, that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, that by virtue of our union with Christ through faith, then we are being built together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Later in Ephesians, Paul prays that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. And in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we find that as believers, we are described as being the temple of the living God. So what all that means is that God not only moved past the physical throne, but He has also moved past the physical temple in a way to fulfill His promise. God has taken up residence in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. Furthermore, God promised in verses 15 and 16 that he would, His people would be abundantly blessed, that He would provide food to the poor, and He would clothe with salvation, and He would put songs of joy in the mouths of His people. And what we go on to read is that Jesus Christ did exactly that. As a matter of fact, you might recall in John chapter 6, there was a moment in time when Jesus fed a multitude, 5,000, with, with just a few little fish and a few little loaves of, of, of bread. And the very next day, that group of people ran after Jesus because they wanted Him to feed them again. 
And Jesus looked at them and He said these words. He says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Just two chapters before that in John chapter 4, it was in the middle of the day, Jesus ran across a Samaritan woman who had gone to a Samaritan well to, to, to draw water. And it was in the middle of the day that Jesus looked at her and He says, if you draw water from there, you'll get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. God's final response back in the psalm here came in verses 17 and 18. And it takes up the issue of God's anointed. There are three symbols that you'll find there. You can go back and look at them for yourself. Three symbols that are mentioned, the horn, the lamp, and the crown. And what we learn is that all of these were ultimately fulfilled in Christ as well. In Luke 1, Zacharias, you remember, he was the one who was muted. He was the one that, that, that God had, had caused to not be able to speak. His first words when God unmuted him and allowed him to speak were these. With regard to Christ, he said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We also read in John chapter 1 that John calls Jesus Christ the light of the world that shines in the darkness. And as the voices in heaven announce in Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So these three symbols mentioned here in Psalm 132, the horn, the lamp, and the crown, they are fully revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of David, the light of the world, and the King of kings. So what we begin to understand is all of the I wills, all of the future tense promises that God made back in Psalm 132, they are ultimately and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in who He is and in what He does and in what He provides those who trust in Him. And here's the encouragement for you and me. I want to quote Stephen Uly once more. He says this, We don't see Christ's kingdom at present, but we will. We don't see the renovation of all things in Him just yet, but we will. We don't see the subjugation of all kingdoms to Him just yet, but we will. We're waiting, awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. And one day, the present kingdom of grace will give way to the future kingdom of glory. Creation will be renewed, and paradise will be restored. And there will be no sound of weeping and no cry of distress. There will be no tension there will be no division, turmoil, conflict, or death. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory, which will shine in every crevice and upon every creature. A renewed heaven and earth will be occupied by a multitude of glorified people, and the king will dwell in their midst forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of Christ. It is here, and yet it is still to come. It is now, and yet we still wait. And as pilgrims, as sojourners, as disciples on a journey, we find common ground with the psalmist and with those who sang this psalm in ancient times. Yet what we recognize is that God's promises have never failed. 
He remembered His covenant with David and He answered it in Christ. From our Lord's incarnation to His death on the cross to His resurrection from the grave, God has fulfilled all of His promises in the past in Christ. And because that is so, we can stand confident that He will fulfill all of His promises that are still yet to come in Christ. From Christ's return in glory to the resurrection of the dead to the final judgment to the renovation of the universe and to the consummation of all things. Brothers and sisters, as disciples, our journey toward the heart of God is shaped by our faith in these promises. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The substance of our faith in the present is rooted in the fulfillment of God's promises in the past and fixed on the certainty of their fulfillment in the future. Let me ask you this question then this morning. Is he where your faith is rooted? Is it in Christ? Is your faith firmly resting in what he has done? Have you trusted in his death on the cross as the only means by which you can be saved from your sins? Does his bodily resurrection from the dead mean life for you? Perhaps a better way I could ask it in light of the the terminology of Psalm 132, has the Lord found a permanent resting place in your heart? The Bible tells us that that happens when by faith you receive the promises that God offers to you in Christ, that you trust in Him, that you make Him Lord of your life. Friend, if you have never done that, then I invite you to do so today. Believe in Him and be saved. If you have done that, if that is your testimony, then this is what I would say. Allow this psalm to be an encouragement to you. Allow this psalm to be that which begins to fan the flame in your life the flame of longing that is already inside of you. Let it grow. Imagine just as the psalmist did of a place where there are no enemies, a place where there are no poor, a place where abundance of God's provision abounds, and a place where you will enjoy the very presence of God forever. And having imagined that, then realize that that is what God has promised to give to all who will by faith receive His Son. He has not forgotten His promises. He has not abandoned them. Instead, He has fulfilled them all in Jesus Christ. And that is why the book of Revelation basically closes with these words. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And then He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.